The Kathleen Show, shaking things up and grabbing life by the ovaries. Here's your host, mom, wife, writer, filmmaker, entrepreneur, and overall, regular chick, Kathleen Slattery Moscow. Hey, welcome to the studio. This is the show where we push back and say hell no to the status quo, where we rattle some cages and make some changes to live our boldest and healthiest lives. And don't forget that the show is also available online and by podcast, so you can go to thekathleenshow.com and share it with anyone you love or even just like. And I'm also on Twitter and Facebook, so come join me there as well. Today's show started as a blog entry I did that caught fire and spread across Twitter and the rest of the internet. And because of that, I thought, hmm, this is definitely worth becoming a show topic. So I got asked a question last month that I thought I clearly knew the answer to. And then I discovered I was dead wrong. Before I tell you the question, keep in mind the spirit of the show as we discuss this. This is a show about walking our talk, about living bold and healthy lives, about being conscious. So the question I was asked was, do you own McDonald's? You can imagine my indignant reaction to this question. Well, of course I don't own McDonald's because processed foods are killing us, because I care about the environment, because I am pro-organics and local food, because I'm against industrialized meat production and the horrific treatment of workers and animals that come with it, because I'm trying to push back against the rising obesity epidemic, because I understand the high price that comes with cheap food, because the world does not need another damn plastic Happy Meal toy to fill the landfills and clog our waterways. Darn it. But then there was the dreaded follow-up question. Do you own mutual funds? I nodded blankly, and then a sinking realization set in, and I found myself suddenly swallowing hard. I raced home, pulled out our investment files, and discovered that lo and behold, I did own McDonald's, a lot of it. It was right there in my mutual funds and mostly in my retirement account, and I couldn't freaking believe it. And I decided right then and there to dump those funds. I could no longer walk the path of talking as if this stuff was important to me, but not put my money where my mouth, heart, or brain was. Because more than anything, I wanted a return on investment that would let me sleep at night. And this isn't just about McDonald's. I mean, you can insert just about any corporate giant that is taking more than it is giving from people, animals, and the planet. And this also isn't about being anti-business, because being an entrepreneur is in my DNA. I love business, but not at all costs. There's a saying that goes, you are what you invest. Where are you invested? There is a way out of the global mess that industrialization has caused, but it's going to take each of us being very intentional about where we spend and place our bucks. My next guest is the thought-provoking man who asked me those two questions. He's the founder of Slow Money and shaking up the way we look at the economy and investing. Investing as if food, farms, and fertility mattered. I'll be right back with one of the most exciting people I've met in a long time, Mr. Woody Tash.
Hello, this is Kathleen, and we're looking to partner with a few great and like-minded sponsors. So if you like what you're hearing on the show and feel that our values are a match, please contact us through our website at thekathleenshow.com. This is Kathleen, and our show is brought to you today by Group Health Cooperative of South Central Wisconsin, where you belong. Welcome back to the studio. My guest today is a man who made me rethink everything in terms of how and where and why I invest my money, and that includes my retirement account. Woody Tash is the chairman and president of an exciting new organization called Slow Money. He is an experienced venture capital investor and entrepreneur and served on numerous for-profit and nonprofit boards. He is also the author of the book Inquiries into the Nature of Slow Money, Investing as if food, farms, and fertility mattered. And I was fortunate enough to have been in Santa Fe last week for the inaugural Slow Money National Conference, and I'm telling you it was one of the most profound experiences of my life. Woody, welcome to the program. Kathleen, that's a tough introduction to live up to. Oh, wow. I mean, I just have to say that you knocked it out of the park last week in Santa Fe, and I'm wondering how you're feeling about how it all went, and I'm surprised you're still upright. (laughs) Uh, Well, you don't actually know that I'm upright. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) That's true. Uh, uh, It was great. It was was, uh, truly heartening to see how many people came from all over the country and from several other countries. It was way beyond our, our expectations in terms of the quality and quantity of attendees. Yeah, and just the overall how everything went and just the emotion and the excitement in the air, I just, oh, it was just fantastic. Okay, so can you tell us what is slow money? Well, slow money is two things. Uh, I, I've come to learn over these last eight months of talking to people all around the country. It's a very concrete thing, which is a network of investors and donors uh, and entrepreneurs who are committed to steering major new flows of capital to local food systems. So, you know, that's, that's a very concrete set of goals and objectives. But it's also become something much bigger than that because of what's happened in global financial markets and a whole bunch of, you know, a confluence of a whole bunch of other larger factors. It's really a it's a space. I'm actually giving you this comment based on someone who's at the same event you were who sent an email, beautiful email, saying thank you so much for holding this space so that we can all come into it and really question, um, A, what's happening, and B, fundamental new directions, true alternatives to the craziness on Wall Street and global markets kind of gone crazy. So, so it is that also that larger thing. It's yeah, a, it's this philosophical it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a new set of values, right. It's a place to explore and affirm a new set of values and actually dare to suggest to one another that we actually can do something that's that's different this time. We're not just going to keep doing the same thing over and over again and hope for a different outcome. Yeah, and about looking for different ways in, in terms of to invest our money and thinking about where we currently are invested and are those things in line with our values? Because that was what was so, so shocking to me. I saw you speak for the first time uh, about uh, probably six weeks ago uh, in Wisconsin and you had asked, you had, uh, you had asked for a show of hands of if anybody owned McDonald's and nobody raised their hands. And then the next question you asked is how many of you own mutual funds? And all of us raised our hands. And all of a sudden there was this sudden awareness of, oh my gosh, where am I putting my money? And is it in line with those values? And that's what to me this organization is about. It's about that philosophical way to align your values with your money. And it's so exciting. And just you've put it in a whole new context that I had never thought about before. 
Well, thank you for saying all that. Okay, so the subtitle of the book is Investing as if Food, Farms, and Fertility Mattered. Why food for the starting point of the slow money movement or, you know, for the basis of it? Yeah, behind that question is the idea that it, that it does extend to more than food, and it definitely, let's say, does and will over time. But we're focused on food at the outset because uh, for two reasons. One is that food is, I think, the most tangible, the most immediate focal point if you're trying to reconnect with the place that you live and natural systems and really trying to feel the, the power of that, where to do that better than food. We all need to eat three meals a day. Um, we, there's a whole bunch of very immediate questions about where our food comes from, food safety, food security. You know, consciousness about food right now is, is going way up, courtesy of Food, Inc., and a whole bunch of other food movies that are coming out. The you know, cover story on Time a few weeks ago was all about the U.S. food system. So there's a whole series of you know, things converging around food. That's, that's more generally, more specifically, you know, slow food, slow money. So I was very inspired by the Italian-based international organization called Slow Food which is still, I, th- I think, it's kind of a toddler in the U.S. You know, it's still growing. It's still kind of getting its feet under itself here because, you know, of course, we invented fast food, so it's going to take us a while to figure out what slow food is. <laughs> but, 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 but around the world, there are 100,000 members of slow food, and it basically connects small food producers and consumers all around the world around issues of food tradition, indigenous culture. Biodiversity is very, very, very important. Health and nutrition, of course. It's just, you know, it's, it's the antidote to fast food. That's all you need to really think about. You can kind of fill in the blanks. And yeah. I've been very inspired by them. It's a beautiful, beautiful movement. So I want to bring a little of that spirit over into our investment discussion. Well, and I think, too, the thing that's loud and clear is that food ties directly into the other pressing concerns of the day, which is the environment and where there's all the raging healthcare debate, you know, right now. And obviously, the food and what we eat and, and the industrialized food production is all tied into this. So I, it is such a kernel for so many larger things. Mm-hmm. I, I, I couldn't agree more. When we had uh, a representative from Senator Udall's office at the conference, and in the remarks that he shared with us, it's very clear that he sees a, you know, very clearly the connection between the energy-slash-environment debate and the health debate and the question of our food system. And I think that's the same thing you're saying right now. These things really are tied together, and food is one of the most integral ways we can attack all of these problems at the same time. Many people listening may not realize how, how much of a polluter industrial agriculture is. So there's a pollution side to it. There's a human nutrition side. You know, we have, we have whole generations of people being raised on high fructose corn syrup and high fat diets, and that's, that's our industrial food system that has huge healthcare implications. So it really is all one whole, but food is a very immediate way in that can really, you know, kind of um, solve a lot of problems at the same time. You know, most of us have come to blindly accept or embrace the notion that growth is good. It's not just good, but necessary, you know, whether on the level of the economy or our individual portfolios. Can you talk about the cold, hard reality of that mentality, especially as it relates to, quote, infinite growth versus finite environment? Well, this is the big elephant in the room. You know, this is the old Malthusian argument, the old limits to growth question, all of these things that have come up over the last couple of hundred years, but let's say with more force each passing decade now about, you know, are there actually limits to growth? Can, how can we continue to have an economy which has to be growing at 5 or 10% a year to be healthy when the planet on which we are living is finite? And as we grow, we're consuming more and more resources and then putting more and more pollution back into that same environment. And I think that people have to decide what they really feel in their hearts is true. And I think most people have a lot of time facing this because it's such a daunting thing. But I think courtesy of Al Gore and our 
you know, recently, let's say, expanded awareness about global warming, we now know, I, I would say the vast majority of educated people now know that we are hitting against, we're bumping up against global limits. No one knows how fast they're going to hit. No one knows exactly what the consequences are going to be. But, but the idea that there are limits is no longer a radical French idea. And by the way, if people listening, um, if there's anybody out there listening who still doesn't like what I'm saying, I would point you to a Wall Street Journal article about a year and a half ago in which Thomas Malthus, the 18th century Englishman who first raised the question of, the, you know, our, could we feed the planet as it kept growing exponentially, as population kept growing, he was he was featured in a lead article in the Wall Street Journal last year when food prices and gasoline prices spiked. So it's not it's no longer a fringe discussion. And I think when you get to the question of growth, it's just really important for me to add, Kathleen, we are not against growth. Slow right. money, right. I am not against growth. We are for entrepreneurship, which by its very nature, you're talking about growing jobs and growing lots of small companies and creating uh, economic opportunities and wealth creation opportunities for people. But we're doing it with a new paradigm, the, the paradigm that the only good company is a billion-dollar company that has multinational market share. That is not the target we're shooting at with slow money. We're shooting at another target, which is complementary to globalization. It's not about trying to stop growth or stop globalization, but it is very, very much about trying to build a complementary system as quickly as possible so that we can have a, a more balanced economy. I love that about your organization, that it is balanced because, in, and I said this during my monologue as well, I'm an entrepreneur. I am. An, it's in my DNA, and that's what I love about this organization. It's not anti-business, anti-growth. It's it's actually for people like us who are just, um, you know, want to do it in a more responsible sort of way and don't see growth growth as something that should be had at all costs, you know? Right. So. I mean, I think we're in a kind of one-size-fits-all worldview right now, our economy. And, you know, it's very telling to me that Thomas Friedman called his book, The World is Flat, because that implies, you know, it's like everything's the same everywhere, and everything is a kind of a commodity that can be exchanged equally for everything else. And taken to extreme, that is a horrible and to my view, a valueless worldview. And that's a, I'm not saying that at Thomas Friedman as much as at the metaphor. And I think we are desperate, not, and I think that's why so many people showed up at our conference. People are desperate for an alternative that says, wait a minute, there's a lot of good that comes out of that, but taken to extreme, like any idea taken to extreme, it's starting to destroy us. We need to assert you know, social values, biological, environmental values, um, sense of place, things that we all know that we need to get back in our lives if we're going to have any kind of quality of life at all. We need to dare to assert those wearing our investor hats, that we have to put some of our investment capital to work building this uh, complementary alternative economy. You really hit home with me when you talked about the role of foundations and the conflict of interest between how they raise their money in order to give money away to their mission. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. This is one of the real eye-openers for me in the last year of traveling around talking to people about slow money. I've been in the, in the, uh, I was treasurer of a foundation in New York called the Jesse Smith Noise Foundation for most of the 90s. And um, it was, let's say, a moderately sized, modest sized foundation. It was $60 million or so uh, when I became treasurer in the early 90s. And we had the radical idea, and I say the word radical, you know, in quotes, to invest our money in a way that was consistent with our charitable purpose, meaning we didn't just want to use the grants to give to NGOs while our money was invested in all kinds of things that we didn't either understand or might even have been working across purposes with the grants. We wanted everything, all the investments and all the grants to support our charitable purpose. And this idea is still radical in the U.S. foundation community, and it leads to all crazy you know, anomalies such as the Gates Foundation being invested in oil companies doing business in Nigeria who are 
you know, badly polluting the environment for many African communities at the same time that, that the Gates Foundation is making grants for, to support the health of African communities. And I, I only pick, I don't say that to pick on the Gates Foundation at all because they are, not only are they not alone, they, this, is, this is the state of the art in American philanthropy. And saying that whole thing is not to cast stones even at the whole structure of American philanthropy. It's just to say that that model, these entities were set up as grant-making machines, essentially. They're supposed to churn out passive income to be used as grants. And to me, that is kind of the an archetype of the 20th century finance. Basically, we had the idea that we should just create as much wealth as we could, and then with some of what's left over, we will give it as philanthropy and try to clean up the mess that the wealth creation caused. And I think that was great for the 20th century. And I think it still does a lot of good. We need the grant money, so it's still supporting a lot of worthy causes. But I think in the 21st century, we need to create a whole new generation of philanthropic entities who view their primary mission to be to invest in companies that are going to build the new economy. Here's a quote that I love from page 32 of the book. Um, In our devotion to money, market, and machine, we are destroying not only the fertility of the soil, but the fertility of our imaginations. What do you mean by that? You know what? You're scaring me. That's the section that I was actually going to read today. And and I have never read, I've been reading a lot from my book all over the country. I've never read that section in one of my readings. Well, I, I definitely just... still want you to read it um, when we get to that at the end. So please do, because I okay. want to hear you read. But what okay. specifically do you mean by that? Well, there's a lot of different ways to talk. That goes into a whole, you know, a bigger area. That ha- uh, The word imagination is very important to me. As you remember, I read a Wendell Berry passage at the conference in which he says we are suffering from a profound failure of the imagination. And he's written very eloquently in a number of places about the need for us as a species to rediscover our connection to nature and to one another. And he uses the word imagination to kind of lead in that area that we've become so um, linear in our thinking, let's say, and so complacent in a way in our sense that we control nature, that it's our place to take from nature and make things and create wealth and whatever, and we've just kind of lost our connection. It's such a basic thing that it sounds a little squishy if you're talking about investing. But I, but I would commend Wendell Berry to anyone who's listening who has not read any of his stuff. He, he is arguably the poet laureate of, I don't even know how to say what, of true American values, of deeply felt understandings, if I can say the words feeling and understanding in the same sense. He, he, really, he really has a deep understanding of, of what we've lost in this country in terms of our culture our connection to one another and to the land as we've kind of pursued maximum technological innovation and maximum economic growth. So imagination is a big word to use in the investor context, but I actually think it's the only word that makes any sense because if you listen every single day, including this morning when I got up my hotel in Boston and listened to the morning's news, every single day there's all kinds of things about regulation. Are we going to do this? Can we change that? You know, Are the special interests dominating this? You know, will the lobbyists stop that? And that system that is in place right now is is only going to change a certain amount from inside. It's just the way it is. There's a tremendous internal momentum to these huge structures that have been put in place over the last few hundred years. And we have to have the imagination and courage as individual investors to actually go in a new direction. I want to say this again, not with all of our money. We're not. By the way, that's why you scared me at the beginning with your introduction. <laughs> this, is not, this is not, I mean, if, if, if people want... If, if people want to be inspired to deep, extreme action, I'm all in favor of it, of course. But as a culture, I think the change we're, we're looking for is 
for people to recognize that a, a meaningful portion, whatever that is, and you've heard me speak about this, so it's not a hundredth of a percent, right. and, there's some, and there's a rationale to these numbers that we won't, don't have to go into in the interview, but it's not a hundredth of a percent, it's not a tenth of a percent, it's not a half a percent, some meaningful portion of our assets to begin taking responsibility for them and investing them near where we live in things that we understand, starting with food. And in, this, in today's world, that requires imagination. This is The Kathleen Show, and I'll be right back with my guest, Woody Tash, chairman and president of Slow Money. You can visit their site at slowmoneyalliance.org. Don't look so surprised to see me. You never wanted much. It's so fun and nice to be here. Oh, how you do and such. I'm better now since I hit the ground. I was spinning like a fool. I'm bigger now since you cut me down with honesty. Honesty. You're looking so sublime. tell me. This show is brought to you by Ayala's Herbal Water. Zero calories, certified organic, and six ravishing flavors. Herbalwater.com. Welcome back. I'm Kathleen Slattery Moscow, and my guest is Woody Tash, the chairman and president of an organization called Slow Money, and his book is called Inquiries into the Nature of Slow Money. Woody, we've been talking so far about how all of this looks on a more global or a larger scale. How does this all play out in our individual lives? I mean, on, on a very individual level in terms of you know, you, you started to touch on it before the break in terms of how we're investing and how we're living. Well, where we are right now, uh, I think the simple answer to your question is we don't have investment structures set up to make it easy for individual investors to use their imagination if you follow what we were talking about before. So one of our jobs at Slow Money is to, over the next few years, we, we call it providing seed capital for the nurture capital industry. What do we mean by nurture capital? We mean a new generation of financial intermediaries that are community-based, that are all about connecting local investors to their local, local economies, against, in our case, starting with food. There needs to be a whole new generation of advisors, investment products, funds, etc., that make it easy for an individual investor to do what we're talking about, but they don't exist yet. So we, are actually, we actually view the Slow Money Alliance as a way to catalyze the development of all of these, and, I, and some of them were present you know, in the room with you the other day in Santa Fe. There's, there are a couple of small new partnerships that want to buy small farms and convert them to organic, for instance, and then have them ultimately reside with the farmer, you know, go into ownership by the farmer and provide a decent rate of return to the people who provided the capital. So without belaboring all the other little sub-points, they're all new. All these intermediaries are new, and many of them haven't even been formed yet. But to your point about what people can do right now while we are starting to uh, catalyze the development of this new financial infrastructure, there's some really basic things like CSAs, belong to a community-supported agriculture farm, which is a form of investment. There's a phrase I meant to share with everybody that I didn't, Kathleen, at the conference. It came up at a retreat we did in Boulder a few months ago, and the, the phrase is, if you eat, you're an investor. Right. And, and it just kind of came out of our, you know, it's, it's, and this is the beauty of slow food. Slow food is about making consumers let's say, enjoy the realization that they are what they call co-producers, meaning how you eat directly connects you back to some producer somewhere and reinforces a certain kind of production. 
And of course, belonging to a CSA is the same thing. You belong to a CSA, you're providing direct support to a farmer, getting rid of lots of layers of intermediaries, and buying a direct share of that farm produce. So the first thing I would say is join a CSA, really basic thing, and sh- you know, shopping in the farmer's market. All of these obvious, I think most people are aware these things exist now. They may not be aware of how important they are because they're so simple and so beautiful. This is actually the beginning of, I, I believe, a fundamental change in the economy, or at least a portion of the economy, in which people stop being passive consumers and actually get more directly related to the things that they are that they're buying and recognize what all the implications of that are. Yeah. And and then and then I just say one other quick thing. There are you know credit unions and other forms of community development financial institutions that do exist in various regions, and that's another place people can put some of their money. And those institutions have, by and large, survived our current correction to a remarkable degree because they are not participating in that global derivatives-driven kind of craziness. And so they've they've really weathered the storm quite well. So that's another place people should look. And then finally, stay tuned because we. We aim to, um, let's say, inspire, if, if we can use that word, uh, you know, a bunch of new intermediaries into business over the next several years. We are already up against another break-in, but as we go out to the break, I want to read another little quote from Inquiries into the Nature of Slow Money uh, from page 118. This will be a nice way to go out. Every investment we make is a statement of intention, a statement of purpose, a speculation of man and his role in the scheme of things, not merely financial speculation. You're listening to The Kathleen Show. And don't forget that this interview will also be online at thekathleenshow.com. I'll be back after the break with Woody Tash of Slow Money. And when we come back, I've got a few personal questions for Woody. (laughs) There was something in the air And there's something shined up so bright I can take This is Kathleen, and our show is brought to you today by Group Health Cooperative of South Central Wisconsin, where you belong. This is Kathleen Slattery Moscow, and I'm continuing my conversation with Woody Tash of Slow Money. And you can read more about the organization as well as their principles at slowmoneyalliance.org. Woody, I want to ask you a few personal things. But before we do, can you tell us what is meant by triple bottom line investing? Just I want people to kind of be able to grasp this. Sure. Triple bottom line is one of the phrases that's emerged to describe a way of investing that takes not just financial return into account, but impact on society and the environment. So you've got sort of people, planet, and profits, if you want to think about it that way. There's been an evolving methodology for the last maybe 20 years now. It's it's picked up a lot of momentum in the last five years or so to try to quantify the so-called externalities, the things that typical investments don't take into account or the things that companies externalize is the phrase, or ignore while they're pursuing maximum profits for the shareholders. And these are all the long-term social and environmental impacts. So, uh, you know, if you're a power plant, you don't typically take into account global warming when you're delivering your profits to your shareholder, right? Because global warming is a big general global problem that you have not been forced to internalize as an individual company. And triple bottom line is perhaps the most generally accepted right now way of thinking about calculating investment returns if you want pay attention to more than just the financial bottom line. You touched on this a little bit, but tell us a little bit more about your background and why you felt compelled to 
really go after this movement or begin this? You know, I, people ask me that a lot, and I, I and uh, when I go away for this little R and R following this this big thing we just did, um, you know, I'm going to reflect on that a little bit. I, I wrote a piece about maybe three years ago for a magazine called Resurgence that a few people may have heard of. It comes out of England. And I actually started it with a quote from the movie Network, in which the uh, commentator says, I'm mad as hell, I'm not going to take it anymore. And then everyone starts opening their windows in New York City and shouting out the windows, I'm mad as hell, and I'm not going to take it anymore. And it's, you know, it's all about, let's say, individuals versus corporate control and freedom of expression, a whole bunch of other things. And you know, it's a little bit that this is maybe my, after 30 years of doing pieces of this, attempt to just say, you know, this is... We have to just be willing to stand up. I, you, you saw me use the expression stare the pig in the face during right. my, my opening <laughs> remarks. I had a picture right. of a, a close-up of a Nyman Ranch hog. We have to be willing to really say out loud what's wrong, what we don't like about what's happening, and kind of affirm that we want to move in a different direction. And I guess I just say this is my attempt to do the, the book. Was, you know, I took a year off from work and just kind of this is what came out. And the degree to which it's resonating with people is obviously you know, extremely heartening as an author. And I think the challenge we have actually as an undertaking, as an NGO, is that we've actually stirred up so much energy in so many people, and the energy races out way ahead of our ability as an organization to actually deliver yet. I mean, in other words, we're just a few people, and, and it's a small organization with a big vision, I guess you'd say right now. But um, I think the answer to your question is this was just one person's heartfelt um, you know, experience of slowing down. I'm not saying that facetiously. I slowed down enough to just think about it, write something down, outside of the fray of day-to-day transactions and everything. And I think it's been useful to a bunch of us as we start to look in a new direction. I want to talk to you a little bit about insecurity, because I got the sense when reading the book that you had been feeling this way for a long time in your heart, in your brain, and in your soul. And what I personally related to on a very human level was the process that it took to put a voice to these things, as well as to must, you know, like muster the confidence in your own wisdom. And you talk about the doubt as a veil. You say it fell, it fluttered to the floor, this last little veil, and with it went the last of my inhibitions, my left brain bugaboos, my taboo deference, my doubts. Can you talk about that a bit? Because I think I think doubt or lack of confidence in what we know is true is something that we all wrestle with when we push back against the status quo. Well, this all this circles back to the imagination idea. It's about going to a different part of ourselves that is really where the truth is, not or a truth, no, our personal truth. It's not that there's one truth. It's but if you feel deep down that things are wrong, and if you feel deep down that what you're doing is inadvertently, let's say, complicit in a broken system, then I think the first step is to actually be able to admit that and face it and then say, well, is there anything I can do about it? And the good news is there is actually something we can do about it. I mean, that's, there is a big piece of good news here, and that is if you look around, you, I mean, you saw those 26 entrepreneurs that we had presenting. It was great. It was three minutes each. They gave a three-minute elevator pitch. It was fantastic. Yeah. It was fun and exciting and heartening all at the same time. Well, I'm so glad you felt that way because that's, that's how I feel whenever I'm around these entrepreneurs. There are people doing the right thing all around the United States. You know, local processing plants, small restaurants that are sourcing locally, you know, niche organic brands, farmers, compost companies, seed companies. I mean, there's a, there's, there are thousands of them. There's, they are literally, quote, sprouting up, if I can use the metaphor, all over the place. So there is, the first thing we got to do is just start working with what's there and start putting some of our money behind all these very beautiful in the, in the truest sense of that, we're beautiful entrepreneurs. But to your point about doubt, I think to the extent we can be honest with ourselves about how deep down we know things are broken, that's the first step. 
and then that will allow us to move in the new direction. And you were asking it very personally of me, and I'll say, right, you're very insightful. Very few people focus on that little tiny part of the story. But, uh, you know, for 35 years, I've been sitting in different parts of the, you know, finance committees of foundations, partners meetings and small venture funds, you know, on the other side, as an entrepreneur, raising money from investors, um, as a social entrepreneur, raising money from foundations. And it's very hard to actually do anything about the parts of the system that are badly broken. There's lots of critiques of philanthropy right now about the inefficiency of the funding relationship and how unsustainable it is. And there are lots of critiques on the for-profit side of how traditional businesses, you know, cannot afford to take these other things into account because they won't be profitable enough. All of those things happen because we haven't actually addressed the true system problems. We haven't actually dared to design something that would work better for the current realities. And by the way, I don't want to overdo this or anything, but you did touch on it, so I'm just giving you an honest answer. You do get a, a lot of questioning from people along the way once you start down this path. Right. I Oh, I know it. <laughs> this is The Kathleen Show, and I'll be back in a flash with Woody Tash of Slow Money. It's me again, Dave Durbin from Kathleen's Movie Side Effects. And yes, while the press raved about the film and audiences gushed over Katherine Heigl's performance, Katherine Heigl lights up the screen, Katherine Heigl shines. It was actually Katherine Heigl's snake of a boss, Dan, played by yours truly, that really carried this movie. All right, I guess Katherine Heigl was charming and funny and drop-dead gorgeous and only got about 95% of the scenes. Well, you can check us both out on DVD and stores everywhere. In the meantime, watch the side effects trailer at thekathleenshow.com. This is Kathleen, and our show is brought to you today by Group Health Cooperative of South Central Wisconsin, where you belong. Hello, welcome back to The Kathleen Show. My guest is Woody Tash of Slow Money, and be sure to check out his beautiful book, Inquiries into the Nature of Slow Money. There's a little bit of Thoreau in there. It's it's poetry, it's wisdom. It's it's just a beautiful, beautiful book. Um, Woody, I, I'd like to... Okay, here's a paraphrase from the book. The solution lies not in the hands of economists and bankers, but in the hearts and minds and portfolios of every man and woman who puts money into the market. We talked a little bit about what people can do today in terms of getting involved with CSAs and the farmers markets and and that there's currently in development some ways that we can get, you know, help support our local farmers. But how can people get involved with the slow money movement? What are the best things people could do? Well, the first thing is very, very simple. Let's go online to slowmoneyalliance.org and sign the slow money principles. We are shooting at a target of a million Americans to sign the slow money principles. And I'm a signer. I'm a signer, everyone. All right. (laughs) Uh, So so that's the first thing. And I can say that in today's political environment, meaning with the current administration, all the changes, we had people from USDA at the conference, et cetera. Which was amazing. uh, Can you believe it? There were people from the USDA there in support of the local movement and the, you know, organics. And it was really inspiring. It was. It was very exciting. So, So if we can get to our million... Uh, signers of the principles, we will be a constructive voice in unfolding policy of various kinds. So that's thing one. Um, thing two, if people are inspired to participate more actively in that, they can join the Slow Money Alliance. They can become a member, which means sending in 25 or more dollars. And hundreds of people have done that. We, we have about 125 now founding members who have sent in $1,000 or more. And those many of them are leaders in the sustainable agriculture field or food entrepreneurs and whatnot. So, so if people go on the website, you can see how membership is described and what your membership dollars go to support. Ultimately, we are aiming to aggregate tens of millions of dollars a year, which we will take. These are philanthropic dollars, membership contributions. 
we will take them and invest them as catalytically as we can to help build local capacity, you know, to connect local investors to local food systems. So that's the process we're embarked on. And I really encourage everyone, again, to go to the website at slowmoneyalliance.org and also to think about going to the conference next year. I don't know that you have a date yet, Woody, but it was one of, like I said, the, one of the best times of my life, and I'll never forget it, and I will for sure oh, be there you, next so, year. Thank you so much. Actually, I just mentioned we, we have been hosting regional meetings. We've made this one national because the energy was building. I'm so glad we did. I'm going to be exploring, Kathleen, um, whether to do a similar meeting somewhere, you know, towards the eastern part of the country, not right on the east coast in a major city, but maybe up in Vermont. We'll see. We have a few venues, possibly in the, let's say, early summer next year, but we haven't made a commitment yet. But I think there was a lot of enthusiasm among the planners of this event to bring another venue someplace uh, in about six months. So, so stay tuned on that front. I know I've read a lot of quotes from inquiries into the nature of slow money, but it's such a such a, just a wonderful book. And I'm wondering if in closing, there's a passage that you'd like to read and possibly comment on. Well, I am going to read the one that you, you took a sentence out of the middle of it. Okay. But I think it's so funny that, that I happened to, uh, this is the honest truth, I happened to decide to read that and as I mentioned, I'd never read it before because it's not as practical as some of the other passages, but I'm going to read it, and here it goes. When John Maynard Keynes wrote, quote, words ought to be a little wild, for they are the assault of thoughts on the unthinking, unquote. And James Joyce wrote, deep in the innards of Ulysses, quote, that the language question should take precedence of the economic question, unquote. They put their fingers on one of the great wounds of the modern era. We need to discover ways of thinking and speaking that can put economics in its place. In our devotion to money, market, and machine, we are destroying not only the fertility of the soil, but the fertility of our imaginations. What is in the farmer's field, a struggle between economics and ecology, becomes in the investor's mind a struggle between quantity and quality portfolios and possibilities, numbers and words. And uh, I don't know how much I have to explain to that passage given our preceding discussion, but I would say the last two, the last three words there, numbers and words, is so basic, but I, I actually do feel like we're in a struggle for the heart and soul of our civilization. We've become numbers driven. You know, everything is about doing the numbers. You know, it doesn't pencil out, doing this, doing that. And you know, uh, this is what was so beautiful about E.F. Schumacher, who I didn't mention in that paragraph, but who runs through the whole book. He he just very prophetically raised the question. He basically said economics is a tremendously powerful tool for getting a lot done, but it is not the organizing principle of human affairs and never should be. And if it is, it's going to destroy us. We need to have an overarching set of values. And that is, um, again, coming back to our earlier point, it's going to take a new kind of imagination. And I'm I'm... I can't tell, I mean, as a person who's been at this for a while and who, let's say, convened that meeting that you came to, you and I had not met before, it's so heartening to see that when people come together, that many people who don't know each other, we had perhaps 425, maybe 450 people there from 34 states and six countries, and I perhaps knew 100 of them, maybe 125, so there are a lot of new faces there. And to have that degree of cohesiveness and kind of warmth and honesty and forward-looking spirit, I think, you know, I've been involved in a lot of organizations, I, I think we, we, we're already in year 10. I mean, there was a lot of goodwill there, and I think it's because of this quality of imagination. People were letting their imaginations express themselves in a collective way, and, and the possibilities are really uh, very exciting. Woody, I want to thank you so much for being with me today. 
Kathleen, I'm so glad you came to Santa Fe. And of course, I will look forward to seeing you the next time. And, uh, you know, thanks for doing this interview. You bet. My guest today was Woody Tash, chairman and president of Slow Money. You can find them at slowmoneyalliance.org or just like us on Twitter. And I can say from personal experience, this is an amazing organization that will inform and inspire you to live your values and get a return on investment that you can sleep with at night. We'll have more info and links to Woody as well as his book, Inquiries into the Nature of Slow Money at our site, thekathleenshow.com. Stay right where you are because I have a pick of the week that just nailed it. We'll be right back. This is Kathleen, and our show is brought to you today by Group Health Cooperative of South Central Wisconsin, where you belong. Welcome back. This is The Kathleen Show, and my pick of the week is Michael Pollan because he strikes again in The New York Times. As most of you know, Michael Pollan was a guest of mine here on the show, and that interview is available on our site, thekathleenshow.com. He's also The New York Times bestselling author of the must-read The Omnivore's Dilemma and In Defense of Food, but Dang, if he isn't also amazing in short form. Michael's newest New York Times op-ed is called Big Food versus Big Insurance, and it's all about the elephant in the room that nobody wants to talk about during this healthcare debate, and that is the role of the food industry. The industry subsidized by the government, yes, subsidized by the government that pushes us to eat more processed crap, making us sick and driving the cost of healthcare with its contribution to obesity, diabetes, heart disease, and the list goes on and on. So kudos to Michael Pollan for having the gonads to go after this aspect of health care. So again, my pick of the week is Michael Pollan's op-ed in the New York Times called Big Food versus Big Insurance, and it's one more testament that Michael is one of the most thoughtful writers of our time. We'll have the link up on our site, thekathleenshow.com. Woo! That's it for this hour, everyone. I'll be right back with hour two for many of you, and for everyone else, have an amazing week. Thinking yesterday